I think if all the big brands got behind mental health in the workplace, because it can't just be about income, how much profit do you need to make before you actually are thinking about investing some of that into people and businesses and radical change, which is going to enhance mental health. And actually we know, and there is loads of research out there that shows evidence that when you invest in your people, it positively affects your bottom line in due course. So you're investing in something that's going to make you more money. Welcome to the Hurt to Healing podcast with me, Pandora Morris. I've been fighting an uphill battle with my mental health for many years, and it's only now that I've started to see some glimmers of light. As part of my own recovery, I've made it my mission to support as many of you as possible on your own healing journey by sharing conversations that are more honest and more raw than ever before. I'll be speaking to some wonderful people from all walks of life who will open up about their own invisible struggles in the hope that it will provide a bit of solace and comfort for some of you. The Hurt to Healing podcast is proud to partner with Shout, the UK's first free, confidential, 24-7 tech support service. So if you're struggling to cope and need mental health support, please text SHOUT, S-H-O-U-T, to 85258. Today, I'm honored to be joined by Poppy Jamman, a respected icon in the international mental health space. She is a global voice of authority on workplace mental health, working with leaders from across the world to create national policies that drive sustainable change. She is the global CEO of Mind Forward Alliance, and over the past 12 years, has created the world's leading workplace mental health organization, focused on transforming workplaces into spaces that support the mental health of their employees. As a British Bangladeshi, Poppy has lived with depression and anxiety throughout her life and has experienced firsthand the mental health challenges common to those in underrepresented communities. Today, we talk all about her inspiring mental health initiative, her own personal struggles, and her brilliant wellbeing toolkit. I encourage you all to create your own after listening to this conversation. So Poppy, will you tell our listeners about Mind Forward Alliance and the work that you do there? We are a global organisation and our ambition is to transform workplaces all over the world to become amazing employers when it comes to mental health. So we want to transform workplaces to become mentally healthy employers. So we're working with corporates and big brands and we are helping them work out their mental health strategy and working with them to work out what good practice looks like, what does it mean to foster belonging, enhance flourishing in the workplace, so that people that are working in big businesses come to work and feel like their jobs are part of their wellbeing toolkit. We've been around as the City Mental Health Alliance. That's how we started a decade ago when the financial crisis happened and we saw significant increase of mental ill health in the city of London. So that's how we started, but we're now in seven countries. I mean, how incredible. And are you doing it with volunteers or are you employing people to sort of be mentors or are the companies literally fostering people from within their own workforces? So it works on three or four different levels. So we've got our own team. So we've got an executive team. And in the countries that we're already in, 
So Hong Kong, Australia, Singapore, New Zealand, India, Portugal, there's small teams or at least an individual who's an executive lead in, in those countries. But what we rely on is our members. So we've got 79 companies, mainly in the financial services sector, that are members of our organisation and they are working with us at a leadership level. So chief executives who are, want to transform their workplaces are working at that level. And then in all of these businesses, you've either got a well-being lead or a HR person or a talent person or somebody at executive level that's got responsibility for the workforce and the health of the workforce. So it's just, it's really exciting. But it's, for me, workplaces are part of the solution. So as you'll know, Pandora, you know, World Health Organization has declared a mental health crisis. We've seen the waiting lists for mental health support go up in a way that we just can't address and support young people particularly. So if workplaces can become part of the solution where they are supporting their workforce, actually then supporting parents that are working for them to support their young people. It takes the burden off of organisations like the NHS in England to do better. But in some countries like India, and I've just come back from a four-week trip in Bangladesh, you know, you've got like a few hundred psychiatrists for the whole of the country. So in those countries, I genuinely feel that global organisations like HSBC, City banks, you know, like they can make a massive difference. And the great thing is they want to, and they're working with us to do so. So it's good. I mean, I think as you so rightly identify, if we can get the big players and the big corporates on board, I mean, it is, it's mega and, you know, it's, it will create a sort of trickle down effect. And as you say, it then affects parenting, it then affects children, it then alleviates the sort of burden on the NHS. And it's just, it's unbelievable. So yeah. And also like your work, I just think the work that you're doing from a lived experience perspective, I come at this from a lived experience perspective, but us coming together to support the agenda has got to be the way forward because things aren't going to move at the scale and the pace that we need them to. And actually we've all, you know, you and I have both experienced workplaces enhancing our mental health and diminishing our mental health. And actually the opportunity is unbelievable for what you can create. But the other point that you make, Pandora, about big brands, like people expect me and you to stand up and be talking about this because we're in that mental health world now, we're ambassadors and whatever you want to call us. But when you've got the managing director of Microsoft, Stephen Worrell, who's our chair in Australia, saying, actually, this matters. Everybody just looks differently at it. And it's a bit like, oh, okay, how is a business leader talking about mental health and well-being? And they're not just talking about it because it's the right thing to do. You build well-being capital. So people actually within the business, when they feel better, they are more effective, they give more, there's more loyalty. So it has an impact on the bottom line as well. And the reputation of the organisation or the business enhances significantly. And if COVID has taught us anything, like surely we've got to get behind our people and our people's health, regardless of what business you are. It doesn't matter whether you're a health organisation, a tech organisation, a voluntary sector organisation, like we all felt the fear when our health was at risk. And I think we just need to turn that on its head. 
you're so right because I read a talk that you actually gave and I think it was at PwC or one of the big accounting firms anyway and you said you know until we can get these leaders to become vulnerable there's not going to be any change and that really resonated with me because as in your case I felt very much that I needed to share my story to try and encourage other people to open up and to say you know it's okay to be vulnerable and to still be struggling and yet to be able to make a difference is what counts. And if I can use my last sort of 20 years of, of my struggle and my strife to make a difference, then in some way that has got to be worthwhile and it feels very exposing. And I do like when, now that the podcast is out, I suddenly think, shit, you know, here's, here's a Pandora on the table, you know, warts and all. But if we can't do that, you know, what's going to change? But it also takes the CEOs of the likes of Apple, Microsoft, Google, you know, Linklaters, whatever the companies are to actually say, you know what, guys, I've got really bad ADHD or I suffer from depression because actually until we get those people to really start opening up, it doesn't really set a very good example, does it? No. And also statistically, if one in four which we know is, you know, that was a pre-pandemic statistic. I think it's it's higher than that. But if one of in four of us are experiencing a mental health struggle at any one point, every single workplace, there's a quarter of the people at any one time going through a difficulty and nobody is immune to it. So talking about it builds community and it builds psychological safety and vulnerability is actually a real strength for conjuring up a great culture within, whether it's a family or whether it's a business or a community organization, like when we're vulnerable, people go, oh, okay, like trust is fostered through that, which I think you do incredibly well, but it comes at a cost, doesn't it? Like the emotional labor, like that was one of the questions I wanted to ask you. Tell me about the emotional labor that comes with you deciding that you wanted to go down that road. And how do you like balance that with your well-being and giving in such a generous way? Well, it's a inter- really interesting question. I mean, I decided that actually I couldn't go on any longer without using my story as part of my future, if that makes sense. I couldn't sit with that. It was like this cognitive dissonance, right? Of trying to be this person, trying to be this lawyer, trying to be this high achieving individual when it was like, it was all a facade. My friends always knew about it, but it was kind of living this lie. And actually it's been really difficult having it sort of fully out there because I think one underestimates confiding in friends versus suddenly like, right, okay, I'm out there. I'm on all the podcast platforms. Like here's my story and, you know, take me or leave me. But I think for me, in some respects, it's been quite a cathartic process and it's been quite exciting to see where it's going to lead. But no, it is. It's a challenge and it it does show me that for these business leaders to open up and to be vulnerable, it does take a big leap of faith. And the other thing about business is that most businesses operate on a two or three year cycle, right? Like this is a long-term objective of a organization and it will outlive the tenure of most of the people that are working in it because it's a global problem, but we have to get on board to solve it. I think if all the big brands got behind mental health in the workplace, not trying to hide it in resilience or well-being or like, like, do you know, like stuff that's digestible, let's call it out. It's mental health and mental having mental health 
is a really good thing. Yeah. Mental ill health is the negative thing. And how do we create jobs that aren't encouraging long working hours culture? How do we create jobs that allow people to get up and do exercise in midday? How do we ensure that jobs are designed so that we can spend time with our loved ones and our relationships and foster those relationships? Because it can't just be about income. And actually, currently with inflation, the economic downturn, we're seeing job losses all over our country and the world. That's debt and financial ill health is a significant risk factor for mental ill health and suicide. Like we need to be mindful of that as businesses and organizations. Like how much profit do you need to make before you actually are thinking about investing some of that into people and businesses and radical change, which is going to enhance mental health. And actually we know, and there is loads of research out there that shows evidence that when you invest in your people, it positively affects your bottom line in due course. So you're investing in something that's going to make you more money. Yeah, there's a no brainer, isn't it? I mean, it really is. But I also put it on the shoulders of my generation to be the stewards for equality, for mental health, for climate, because there's almost like, well, actually, the next gen are going to fix it. We're burdening you lot with so much. And I just don't think there isn't loads of research, but the evidence around what you guys carry on your shoulders compared to what we had to is significantly different. And I feel like that too is a responsibility for business leaders who are my generation is that we can't just go, well, we're just going to pass the buck and we're going to have our successful careers and retire. And actually the next gen will fix it. No, we've got to leave a legacy that you guys can build on rather than fix the problems that we've created essentially. Hurt to Healing has partnered with Brown Advisory to bring you this podcast. Brown Advisory, a global investment management firm, is passionate about raising awareness of mental health challenges in order to help people thrive in an ever-changing world. A big thank you to Brown Advisory for supporting my mission. So Poppy, I'm going to circle back to the beginning and I'm going to ask you about your upbringing because I know that you had quite a challenging upbringing yourself and have struggled with your own mental health issues. So what was growing up in Portsmouth as, you know, someone of Bangladeshi origin? What was that like? Yeah, so look, I'm 46. So I'm a child of the 80s where the culture in our country was very different. You know, there was like open racism pretty much everywhere and more than tolerated, just sort of accepted. And Portsmouth, unfortunately, sort of scores pretty high when it comes to what it did back then, pretty high when it came to one of the most racist cities in our country. So also being sort of this first generation that has been raised in this country. So I was born in Bangladesh. I came over to this country with my parents, with my mum when I was only 18 months old. But we were one of sort of three families, I think, at the time in Portsmouth that were Bangladeshi origin and probably, you know, people of colour, brown people. So the community also kept it like really close to itself. And my parents raised me to not have a boyfriend and not be too ambitious and have a career. It was like the goal that I was raised with was to be a great daughter-in-law and a great wife. And that was the full extent of what I was allowed to sort of 
think about. But I, I was always pretty, like, I didn't want kids. I wanted to travel the world. I was ambitious. I was head girl at school. So I guess I was pretty spirited, I suppose, as a young person. But that then meant I was constantly struggling. So I'd come home and pretend that I was Bangladeshi, whatever that meant to me, like so pretty conforming, I suppose. But then at school, I'd be hitching up my skirt and skipping school. and But at the same time, I was academically really able, so was head girl. So just, but what I realise now and through years of therapy is I was splitting. So I was splitting myself into all of these different personalities. And the cumulative factor of that was then I had a forced marriage. I was, you know, pretty ambitious, wanted to go to uni, wanted to and that wasn't allowed. So then then I had a boyfriend and that wasn't allowed. And so it was just a constant struggle. And I really feel for my parents because God, you know, I really make them work hard for a teenager that they just didn't get. And at the time I didn't see their perspective because I was just a teenager, but they were, you know, my mum got married to my dad when she was just 15. Dad was I think early 20s, mum was in a foreign country without language. Like, so you can understand it all. But as a teenager, I didn't, I didn't care or have that perspective. So I ran away from home and that then resulted in me going back to Bangladesh and getting married. And then I sort of, in my head, I, I'm quite good at going, well, this is my life now and I'm going to succeed at it. So then I sort of put seven years into this relationship. But actually, as soon as I had my first child. It was at that point that I was diagnosed with postnatal depression. But Pandora, like listening to your story and relating to some of it, like I don't think it was postnatal. It was probably started much younger at the age of 13, 14. But back then there wasn't that recognition, that awareness. I mean, if I look back, I was irritable. I was anxious. I was angry. I was sleepless. I'd write a lot of poetry. I'd keep a journal. So I was I was naturally doing healthy tactics. And thank goodness my family don't, don't drink and we were Bangladeshi, so I wasn't allowed to go out because I probably would have ended up doing drugs and alcohol. Do you know what I mean as well? So there are some small graces in the upbringing, but struggling a lot. But I always sort of say to people, my story is not really that unusual. There are thousands of women like me of my generation who had an arranged marriage or a forced marriage or or a situation similar to mine. It's not really about the story. It's about the fact that I ended up having mental health difficulties, diagnosis as a result. And then the massive journey that then went on in terms of healing and recovery. And for me, medication wasn't really working for a period of time because it was, you know, I had a baby and the medication wasn't balancing it. Talking therapy wasn't working. And I've said this in so many occasions, like culturally nuanced talking therapy, regardless of what your culture is, whether you're a 30 year old and need someone that gets the current context that you're in, or whether you're an Asian woman, talking therapy being relevant is really important. So that wasn't working. And then I remember being really clear that I needed financial freedom. So actually I was on benefits. I was in a council flat. I was really unhappy in this marriage. I was just every element of what is good for our mental health was completely diminished. And I I got a job. That's what I did. I got a job and it paid less than being on benefits at the time, like 62 quid or something like that a week. But 
what work gave me and what my amazing line manager gave me was confidence. I had routine and structure. I had purpose outside of mental ill health. It gave me a little bit of resources to actually have agency and and what my line manager did was constantly open doors and give me challenging projects and give me platforms to go and do my thing in. And over a period of time, it was probably the number one thing that aided my recovery. Because if you can't feed yourself, you can't have good mental health. If you don't believe in who you are and nobody sees you for the person that you are and the skills that you are, how do you build your confidence? So it wasn't a revolutionary job. It was just a job. But those things came from a great line manager. And I guess fast forwarding that to what I'm doing now, that's why I think workplaces are magic or can be magic. If we can get it right for people, they can be life enhancing in so many ways. Well, thank you for giving us such a, an incredible, God, it's such a colourful, rich sort of journey that you've been on, but also, wow, to have got yourself into that position where you had the, I mean, a lot of people would have just fallen to pieces. They would have come out of an arranged marriage. They would have been bringing up sort of two children. And I mean, to have that strength and that drive to want to kind of bring yourself into, I mean, I think it's incredible. Thank you. But I have to say, you don't do it on your own and you'll get this completely. Like it was the line manager. Didn't know about my mental ill health diagnosis, but knew that I was skilled at stuff and believed in me. It was the health visitor who was like, you all right, let's get you onto some medication. And actually your baby's fine and you're anxious. And this thing is called mental health and mental ill health and depression. And it was generosity, like my mum, I mean, she was incredibly unhelpful in lots of different ways, but incredibly helpful with taking care of my baby, like actually doing the childminding and having her overnight when I needed sleep. I mean, again, mum didn't fully understand what depression and uh, postnatal depression was, but she knew that I needed support and I was a really young mother. So like that saying, isn't there, that it takes a village to raise a child. Like I, I am so grateful throughout my life for people supporting me because I, and even now, like I've got a really cool board. I've got some really great friends. I don't think I'd be here if I didn't have that network and social connection and peer support is one of the number one most protective factors of our mental health and having good mental health. And again, I come back to work. When you spend that many hours at work, where is the time to nurture and nourish social support outside of work? So work has to provide the space for that interaction, that social support. So yeah, I mean, it's not at all credit to personal resilience. Personal resilience was built because other people stepped in and held my hope at times that I was hopeless. Because there were, there were two or three times where I wanted to end my pain with suicide. And actually I was listening to your suicide podcast and I was thinking, yep, I get that. I've been there, done that. So suicidal ideation is really common, but nobody had the conversation about suicide. For me, they were reactions at points of immense stress where I just thought, I can't do this anymore. So, and I'm not good for anybody around me. Thank God that none of them were completed, but there was no mental health, how are you conversations that called out 
are you having suicidal ictations? Because people fear that if you ask that question, you might give somebody the idea. That's nonsense. That's not true. If you ask the question, you, people kind of go, oh, is that is that a real thing? Can we have this conversation? Absolutely. And I think that was a real takeaway that I certainly got from, from that conversation. It's so essential, especially when you fear that the answer might be yes, to ask a friend or a colleague or a family member, are you having suicidal thoughts? It's extraordinary how few people just still find mental health a very awkward subject and they find it very hard to confront. And as you say, we so rely on those people, just those, you know, it's like someone in a shop who smiles at you and says, oh, are you okay? Or, you know, a friend that just sends you a text message each morning to say, just checking in, like whatever it is. And it's not necessarily the obvious ones either. As someone who does suffer from mental health issues, you have to know which network makes you feel good at a particular time and who to sort of lean on for what, because I think that's been a real lesson that I've learned. And certain friends give you certain things and you just have to know. And I think people underestimate the part that they actually play in, in one's recovery and one's journey. And also there's the guilt, like the guilt of oversharing, the guilt of overburdening. So when you've got depression, like my my, my feeling is very unique to everybody, but my feeling is like, I'm too full on, I'm too much. I'm like, I need to just make myself smaller and, you know, I'm getting in the way of people. So at those really low times, if you have called up someone and it happens to be the same person as well, the two or three times, even though my friends are like, call me. And we do, it's vice versa. I feel like I'm overburdening because they've got loads going on in their life. Do they really want to spend time absorbing what I'm, what I've got going on? So I start to make myself smaller. And actually that's when you need to reach out most. So one of my wellbeing toolkit things is I literally have a list like I know it sounds so clinical, but it is I have a list of people and what they're good for me for. And when I'm really struggling, I instinctively know. And if the instinct doesn't kick in because I'm going around in this, I don't know about it. I like I can get my list up and I can save myself the issue of having to make a decision by going, ah, that's a clinical way of reacting. And sometimes you need to do that because your feelings are so bombarding you on a, such an immense, intense basis that you want to be under your duvet. So to have a list that you can go, okay, I'm going to call that person because the main thing that I'm worried about today or the main disturbing thoughts or intrusive thoughts today is about the kids. Like, So that's the person that I'm going to call and have a chat honestly, it just works such a treat. And it's been one of my tactics for for years now. And I say to everybody, develop a wellbeing toolkit and stick on their names of loads of people so that you don't have to feel the guilt of burdening the same person. Yeah, I know that's a brilliant, brilliant tool. So what else is in your wellbeing toolkit? So I'm pretty clinical about it. And I I encourage everybody, whether you've got a diagnosis of mental health difficulties or not, to create a well-being toolkit because we all need them. And I base mine on the five ways to well-being because that's an evidence-based model. So connecting, I've already talked about. But actually, I also do other little things in terms of connecting is, you know, I send my nieces and nephews postcards because everything is digital in their life. So I quite like to do little things like something that's a little bit different with funny. So it just means that I'm connected to the little people in my life. 
learning. So at the moment, yesterday I did my first capoeira dance class and I ache, <laughs> but I'm yeah, usually yeah. doing something in the background. Like during the pandemic, I decided to take up singing lessons online with a friend of mine who's a Bangladeshi singer. And I chose the hardest Bengali song, bearing in mind it's my second language. So I've always got something that's not sitting in front of the computer and that's a bit more arty. I'm never fully successful at any of these things, but that's quite cool. So keep learning something's out that's outside of my day-to-day stuff. I mentor women. I sponsor three scholarships in Bangladesh for three nurses who wouldn't have had the opportunity to study because of economic situation that they're in. So that's really cool. Being present. So I do yoga most days and I try very, very, very hard to go on walks outside without a phone. You know, I try and do at least 8,000 steps a, a day and I really feel it if I don't, but I used to be into running, etc. But over the years it's changed, but I've always enjoyed moving. So I try and build that into my work. So, and I'm not perfect. I think a really important thing to also sort of keep reminding yourself is not to have to do anything perfectly. So it's taking up a skill or a hobby, but it's like, I don't have to be the best in the class. I don't have to be the best, like most flexible person in that yoga class. Or It's putting the competitive side aside as well. And that's another thing that we notice in the in the workplace, you know, particularly in the big corporates that we're working with. So perfectionism seems to like drive businesses. So we're this big corporate, we're shiny, we're best at everything, we've got the best people. So it constantly encourages people to be very, very competitive and perfect, which is actually quite toxic. Like toxic perfectionism is a thing. Well, I mean, thank you. I mean, what you're doing on a sort of nationwide, multinational sort of scale is phenomenal. It's so inspiring and it's just so what's needed. And I just, yeah, I've got so much admiration for you. Thank you. Well, watch this space. Well, Poppy, you are, as I said, an absolute inspiration. And I feel so honoured that you came here today. So thank you. Thank you very much, Pandora, for inviting me and all the amazing work that you're doing as well. I mean, it's you're on a mission and uh, always behind a woman that's on a mission. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Hurt to Healing podcast. I'd love for you to subscribe to the show or to follow me on our Hurt to Healing Instagram at Hurt to Healing Pod. You might also have a friend or family member that you think might benefit from hearing this conversation. So please spread the word. Thank you.